This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Um, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time set aside to come to your word, Lord. We pray that you would be Lord amongst us, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be present to instruct and guide and enlighten. So, Father, we pray you'd bless this time and our fellowship together in your name. Amen. Right, welcome. So, um, I see quite a few new faces here, so I'll just... We did, there wasn't a Bible study last week because that was um, very close to uh, Yom Kippur. Um, but we've been working through the book of Acts for most of this year and we've now reached chapter 20. And what we do conventionally is I've got the uh, notes from David Pleggy's study two weeks ago, the previous one, and we read through that just to, as a recap or to help give the context of the previous chapter that we're going to study. So this is, was what was handed out. And you can take these away with you yeah, by all means, this, this um, two-page summary. So um, do you want to start? It's already. Okay, great. Um, ancient readers were no, no different than readers today. They enjoyed humour, irony, and suspense wrapped up in, into a good story. Luke provides all this and more when he gives us the highlights of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, recorded in Acts chapter 19. So some key themes in Acts in this chapter are these. Um, Acts must be read as a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. The mission of Jesus, according to that account, is found in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus reads from Isaiah 61 and 58 and applies those words to himself. The Holy Spirit is on him and his followers to set the captives free. In Acts 19, we have Paul and the early church preaching a gospel that specifically liberates from the demoniac that finds a foothold through idolatry. Sickness and diseases were also healed in Ephesus as well. Secondly, the gospel ultimately overcomes all political and spiritual opposition. Throughout Acts, the gospel confronts idolatry in its various forms and challenges those idols politically, economically, and philosophically. Ephesus uh, was well known, was a, as was well known, was a major centre of idol worship that was economically enriched by pilgrimage to the temple of Artemis and a large idol-making industry. Thirdly, following Jesus can be a risky business that results in persecution, hostility, and misunderstanding. And so uh, David Pelleggi has just given these following points to consider when looking at Acts chapter 19. So Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, which today is modern Turkey. Paul centered his mission, ministry there, no doubt, due to its geographical and economic importance. We know from Josephus that there was a large Jewish community in Ephesus which had a number of freedoms such as Shabbat observance and an exemption from military service. And maybe it's not so well known that uh, the Jewish religion was regarded as a, a permitted religion within the Roman Empire because it predated the Roman Empire. You know, it, uh, so they, they granted it those freedoms. The same freedoms were not granted to the offshoot 
of Judaism, which was Christianity, or the way, as it was often referred to. So that's the cause sometimes of frictions between the synagogue and the emerging church. Okay. From Acts 18 and 19, it is evident that the message of John the Baptist was well known in the Jewish diaspora. Were the disciples in verse 1 followers of Jesus or only of John the Baptist? It should be noted that every time Luke uses disciples, it is a description of Jesus' followers. Even if they were only disciples of John, it is impossible that as his followers, and as Jews for that matter, they had never heard of the Holy Spirit. So the sense in, in verse 2 must be that they did not yet know that the Spirit had been poured out. So these people who hadn't come across the Spirit just had not heard about the event of the day of Pentecost, is, is a better way to understand that situation. Uh, point uh, verses um, 19, uh, 1, 1 to 7 are very controversial in the dispute between Pentecostals and non-Pentecostals. If these disciples are not Jesus' followers, then they have not yet received the Spirit. But if they have believed and are indeed Jesus' followers, then according to Pentecostal theologians, it demonstrates that the gift of the Spirit can be received after coming to faith and being water baptised. And actually one thing you find in God's work is he just kind of, if there are rules, he'll break them. Okay, you know, the, Things happen, like with the, uh, the ministry in Samaria there. Philip preaches the word, and then it's only really when Peter and John turn up that they receive the Spirit. And there were reasons for that. But, you know. but the main one is, the Lord is sovereign. And we, we like to make rules, and then, uh, then we end up sort of tying ourselves in knots. You know. So, it, point five. In the name of Jesus is not a formula for baptism, but a description of the type of baptism. An immersion for the sake of Jesus, or similarly according to his teaching. This distinction is essential since Jews frequently immersed themselves in ritual baths for reasons of ritual purity. The baptism in the name of Jesus, however, was intended to be a one-time initiation into the Jesus community. Point six, keeping with his priorities, namely to the Jew first. Paul enters a synagogue and teaches on the kingdom of God. But note that in Acts, this term is almost never used in a Gentile setting. It would not have made much sense to the Gentiles or might have even been sounded seditious. Now, handkerchiefs and aprons. This is about these amazing miracles that were done by Paul, whereby you know, aprons and handkerchiefs that had touched him could be taken away and healed people. Uh, quite remarkable really so and David says just when we think we have got God figured out he does things in a different or even a baffling way these handkerchiefs and aprons were in the tradition of Elijah's mantle Elisha's bones Jesus seat those are the tassels on his outer robe and Peter's shadow and more examples like that while we are not advocating the use of relics, etc., it is possible to see how this practice originates. So, for example, if you have received one of these handkerchiefs that somehow, you know, from Paul, and someone's brought it with you full of faith that it will sort you out, and it does, what do you do? Do you blow your nose up the next day? <laughs> Probably not. 
you may well frame it or do something special with it. So can you see how it then be, can, can that end up be kind of developing towards the idea of a relic or something that um, ends up being a snare for people? Because, you know, it's human nature. We, we have a, an uncanny, uncanny tendency to go towards reverencing things which is not always appropriate. Anyway, objects associated with a holy man and woman might at times have had some sort of power. Point eight. While the ancient world believed in demons, it was a Jewish concept that humans could be possessed and thus Jews throughout the Mediterranean would found fame as exorcists. Sceva was unlikely a real high priest and more likely a fraud. But also Gentile exorcists were known to pass themselves off as Jews and to use Hebrew words in order to attract clientele. Again, the name of Jesus is not a formula or a magic incantation. Luke's audience no doubt enjoyed the humour and irony of the demons attacking Sceva and his seven sons. You know, basically this story results in, it's not the demons that are cast out, it's the seven sons that are cast out naked and wounded. They are just thrown out of the house. So just, that's the, um, the irony of the situation. Yeah. Once they recognise that Paul's Jesus cannot be manipulated like lower spirits, many now understand that the apostle is a servant of the living God and not just another magician. Such a demonstration of God's power brings about a deep repentance among the believers. One commentator notes that some translate confessing practices as divulging spells. A possible meaning divulging secret spells was believed to deprive them of their magic power. And the other interesting thing about the story is that they said, what, 50,000 drachma was the value of the, um, the books and the spells that were burnt up. And 50,000 man's day's wage is an awful lot of money. And some people might say, oh, couldn't they have been sold to feed the poor? No, 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 no. You don't do that with these, this kind of material. You burn it. Even though it was worth um, probably is a, a million and a half dollars in, in updated terms. So a lot, lot of money. Well, that would just, if you sold it, it would just be per, 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 perpetuating. Yeah, you, they, they would still be there and doing no good. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. But, you know. Point 10. Before trouble begins, Paul had intended to leave Ephesus. His nearly three-year stay there can be considered the high point of his ministry among the Gentiles. He supported himself through his tent-making, and while he had many successes, it was also a stressful time for him, as uh, he gives examples in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. In verses 23 and following, adherence to the gospel begins to threaten the economic basis of the city. It is important here to note how Paul and the early Christians discerned and confronted such idolatry. They speak in one fashion to pagans and in another, more mature way to Christians. These differences have been summarised by Christopher Wright in The Mission of God as the following. So the point that David is making here is that Paul in his preaching is not coming down heavy on idolatrous practices when he's evangelising people. But when it comes to teaching within the community of the church, that, that will be a completely different emphasis. So... Um, he says here, comparing Paul's theological argument to Christians 
in Romans 1 with his evangelistic preaching to pagans recorded in Acts, there is a remarkable difference in tone, even though there is certainly no clash of fundamental convictions. Romans was written to Christians and highlights the wrath of God, amongst other things. Acts, referring to speeches made to pagans, highlights God's kindness, providence and patience. Both, however, insist on God's judgment. Romans portrays idolatry as fundamentally rebellion and suppression of the truth. Acts portrays it as ignorance, forgivable, but demanding a change. Romans portrays the wickedness that idolatry spawns, and Acts portrays idolatry as worthless. Romans points out how perverted the idolatrous thinking has to be. Acts points out how absurd it is when you stop and think about it. Paul could excoriate idolatry as a lie before Christian readers, but he did not blaspheme Artemis before her pagan worshippers. That was maybe a sensible thing to do, you know, an astute approach to um, continuing to be able to preach the gospel. However, but without compromise, obviously. So there's a difference in tone and tactic in Paul's confrontation with idolatry, depending on the context of his argument. However, we should be clear that in both cases, he is building all that he has to say on very solid scriptural foundations. For every one of the points mentioned above, even though they have differing and balancing emphases, can be related to the Old Testament's rhetoric against idolatry. It is particularly noteworthy that although Paul nowhere quotes Old Testament texts in his evangelistic preaching among the Gentiles, as he so profusely does when speaking amongst Jews in synagogues, the content of his message is thoroughly grounded and plainly proclaims the monotheistic creation faith of Israel. Okay, so there's, there's the notes for the chapter 19 from a couple of weeks ago uh, to pad out. I mean, I, I'm afraid I wasn't able to be at the, at the study because I was in the UK at the time. So what we're going to do now is we're, we're moving on to Acts chapter 20, and the first thing we do routinely is we read through the whole of it one verse at a time from whatever version you have in front of you. That's fine. It doesn't have to be in English because we can all follow the version in front of us. Um, and we'll read to the end, although I'm not entirely sure we'll be able to get to the end in the study, but we'll, we'll still read to it and then uh, jump in and, and look at it more closely verse by verse. So I will start and we'll go around this way and then that way and then... Okay, the idea of reading one verse at a time... Okay, I'll, I'll start from Acts 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece. And there abode three... Oh, and there abode three months... Okay. And when Jews and the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he proposed to return through Macedonia. And so Peter of the the sons of Phimus, accompanied him, as well as Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Caius of Darby and Timothy and the Asians, uh, Tychicus and Trochimus. <laughs> then went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. 
Men vi sendte ut fra Filippi etter de usynlige brøs dager og kom til dem i Toas fem dager senere. Der ble vi i syv dager. On the first day of the week, when we met to break bread, Paul was holding a discussion with them. Since he intended to leave the next day, he continued speaking until midnight. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus. Uh, he fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sank down to sleep and fell down from the third floor and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him said, Trouble, not trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not able to comfort him. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself <coughs> to go by land. And when he met us at uh, Assos, we took him on board and went to. Mm, <laughs> <Yeah. Mateline>. <laughs> <laughs> And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus, because he would not spend the time in Asia, for he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. And from, I'm saying Miletus, Mm -hmm. um, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourself know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you all the time. I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I've endured the trials that came to me from the cross of the Jews. As I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus. Save that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things will be, neither can't I not like the answering, so that I might finish my course of joy and end the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the of grace of God. <coughs> grace of God. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I testify this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. <coughs> Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers 
to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who have been sanctified. I have never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes. For this I have given you an example that by such work we must support the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, for he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. <coughs> And they wept sore, and fell on Paul's neck, and kissed him. Sorrowing, sorrowing, most of all, for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more, and they accompanied him unto the ship. Okay, thank you. Yeah. So I say it's, it's a fairly long chapter, and we may not get all the way through to the end. And, um, so I'm, I'm going to go through verse by verse and um, make some points, but then I want you to feel free to ask questions or make observations and, you know, we'll kind of try and make it uh, a joint exercise. Uh, now, one of the things that, that, one of the focus things that we have for this study is the acts of the Holy Spirit while looking at the, uh, the whole book of the Acts of the Apostles. And there are some occasions when less is mentioned in terms of the work of the Holy Spirit, or at least explicitly, and sometimes more. So that, and that tends to be a bit more in that kind of second half of this chapter. But we're, we're still, still keeping that in mind, understanding um, how the Lord works in different ways, and also how it's recorded by Luke. Uh, I don't know whether you know, but actually Acts is the book in the New Testament that re- refers to the Spirit more often than any other book. It's about, it comes about 60 times in Acts, and the next most common book is Romans, and it comes about 30 times, uh, is the word, you know, either the word Spirit or the word Holy Spirit, that many times. And Luke's Gospel has about 17 times. So um, that's why it's a key feature of Acts. And it's one of also um, Luke's emphasis anyway, both in Luke and Acts. So now I'd like you just to... Uh, take hold or see if you can see a copy of the map so it's the one that's entitled Paul's third missionary journey at top there Um, just to give you the context so in the top right hand corner thereabouts is the phrase starting point so this is pointing to Antioch this is where this is Antioch in Syria where Paul was based and this is where he started the journey from and he went over land, can you see the, following the red line through what we now think of as Turkey, all the way over to the uh, coast on the west side at Ephesus. So can you see Ephesus? So that's where the action in 
chapter 19 was based. And now we're coming to the end of um, that situation. And there are um, some verses here that cover the rest of his journey. So what he does is goes from uh, Ephesus and goes north and round and down to Corinth and then and back again. But that's, um, that information is uh, not obvious from the um, account in Acts. So actually what we have here in maybe the first two verses, or certainly the first few verses, um, Luke has sort of telescoped about two years' worth of information into two, two or three verses. I mean, he does this. He, he, some things he highlights in detail, and something he just skips over. Because, I mean, when you're a historian, everybody has to make choices of what to include and what not to include. And, and these, this goings-on has not, hasn't featured in his account. Um, whereas, curiously, if you like, the end of chapter 19, there was quite a long section about this um, near-riot at the theatre in Ephesus. So by this point, uh, we get the hint that um, Paul has spent about three years in Ephesus teaching and preaching, and including a bit of travelling as well, as we'll point out. Um, the time is about the year AD 55-57, around then, if you, if you like to kind of picture those sort of things in your head. I'm sorry, what year was that again? Uh, AD 55 to 57 is kind of what we're covering in chapter 20. But most of it is actually covered rather quickly in the first few verses without, you know, really uh, being clear. And what we're going to do is, to, to add to the context, I'm going to pick out some information from the letters of Paul that help us understand what was going on in these early verses of chapter 20. So the first thing to state is that, uh, because a lot of this has to do with um, Corinth as well as Ephesus, um, on his, his previous missionary journey, so his second missionary journey, Paul established the church at Corinth and he spent about 18 months there. So that was about five years previous to what we're looking at at the moment. Um, and during or towards the end of his time at Ephesus, uh, Paul sent Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia and then on to Corinth. Um, so I'll just read that. So it, this is a verse from the previous chapter, Acts 19, verses 21 and 22, where it says, Paul resolved in spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying... After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Um, so very probably, Timothy and Erastus were carrying with them the letter of the Corinthians, the first letter to Corinthians. Although, to be really confusing, we think Paul wrote at least four letters to the Corinthians, and the ones that we have are number two and number four. But, but that's the, so what we call first letter, because in chapter five of First Corinthians, it talks about the letter he, he has already sent to them. So, and he, 
The Corinthians is a very important place for Paul. He even calls it the seal of his apostleship. Um, and, you know, the Lord revealed to him that he, the Lord had many people in Corinth to be saved. And that the challenges were different compared with the challenges in Ephesus. You know, the challenges in Ephesus were characterized by the idolatry of the temple of Artemis, whereas the challenges of Corinth were more to do with the pagan society and, you know, and the, the fact that the majority of people were slaves you know, and, and not educated. But, you know, the, so Paul had to take a completely different approach and, and it shows in some of his letters to them. Uh, we have this situation where Timothy and Erastus, they're, they're travelling round ahead of Paul, they're heading towards Corinth. Um, and Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians that he's sending Timothy. So in, in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, he says, I urge you, therefore, to be imitators of me, and that is why I send you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways as I teach them everywhere in every church. So that, that's um, confirmation that Paul is sending Timothy on ahead. And Paul tells them of his plans to visit them again at the end of 1 Corinthians, at the end of his letter. So 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 to 10, says this. I, I won't read all of it, but um, Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. So on, on, the, on the map, can you see the Macedonia is that country there? For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So that's how Paul characterises his life in Ephesus. Great opportunities, but great opposition as well. And so he stays on. So, that's, so that letter goes to the Corinthians. But the snag is that Timothy returns to Paul with troubling news about the situation in Corinth. So Paul then visits himself, probably goes by sea. We don't, this isn't recorded anywhere, but this, this is kind of joining the clues that they contained in the letters. And um, then he writes a tearful letter to them. So he visits them, finds the situation really bad and that he's not really welcome so he leaves rather than challenging the situation and then writes them to the letter of two corinthians which has got some very challenging things in it and it, he calls it his tearful letter which is it's not it's not preserved but it's mentioned in two corinthians and he says he kind of regrets sending it he says in two corinthians 2 4 for i wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So the situation is really that Paul really wants to revisit Corinth, but he is uncertain of how he will be received by the church. So what he does this time, he sends Titus on ahead in order to find out what's going on and to report back. So now we're reaching... So that's the background to um, the run-up to the first verse of Acts 20. And the first verse there says, After the uproar, in other words, this near riot in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples 
And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. So that means he's heading north. And um, he goes to um, heading towards Troas, in fact. Um, but the problem is he doesn't find Titus. He's, um, and he mentions this in his letter for... Um, when I came to trust to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So he crossed the sea from Troas into Macedonia by ship. And there, much to his relief, he did meet Titus. And so he writes again later on in, in 2 Corinthians, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. So during the, so this is when Paul is going through Macedonia here. I mean, we don't really know where, but it, during that time he writes to Corinthians. Um, and then he gives Titus gives, and sends Titus back with the letter to Corinth and, and Titus with several others. Um, and, what, and what he's doing is, so part of this whole trip is to organise a collection of money from his churches to send to the Christians in Jerusalem. And Paulus takes this really seriously. You'll find a number of places where he encourages people to, um, you know, repay the debt to the, the, the believers in Jerusalem who are struggling for whatever reason, whether it's kind of... Whether one occasion it might have been a, a famine, but an, another occasion maybe, you know, pressure from the religious authorities or whatever. But Paul takes this very seriously, and this comes through... In chapter 20, we, we learn more about aspects of this campaign to, uh, you know, bless the, the believers in, in Jerusalem with a significant gift. And so in verse 2 of chapter 20, it says, When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So again, this kind of skips over all sorts of things. And... Um, Paul, no doubt, in Macedonia would have visited the churches that we know about, which would have been Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. But also there were probably other fellowships he would have wanted to visit, you know, because he had a heart just to see the Lord's work spread. And we even, um, putting two and two together, we know that he travelled, we walked actually right to the Adriatic coast, right across Macedonia, and then up a bit to a place called Illyricum, um, and he says this in the letter to the Romans. He says uh, in Romans fifteen eighteen to nineteen, he says, "For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, so that from Jerusalem and all the way round to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ." And we know that this was when of uh, this time when we're talking about Illyricum is sometimes called Dalmatia, it's kind of the Adriatic coast up there which is disappearing off our, the top left-hand corner of our map there. 
sorry, and it's, it's marked in a very faint way on the map. There's a very dotted line, which is the Ignatian Way, which is one of these main Roman thoroughfares. Where, so it made travelling, you know, a realistic possibility, though there were always dangers involved with travelling. And there was always um, security in numbers to travel with, with groups around. So, um, verse 3. Uh, he comes to Greece. Well, actually, Greece really means Corinth. I mean, Greece is another term for what we see there as Achaia. And so he spent, there he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. So if you look at the map again, so can you see Corinth here? What Paul was wanting to do was to do what he did in his second missionary journey and head straight across the sea as directly as possible back to Jerusalem. So it may be a stop to Ephesus and then straight over to um, you know, either Caesarea or Tyre or wherever. But what happened was that there was this plot to scupper him. And I suspect, actually, there may have been a plan to, um, you know, the rumour got around that he was travelling with lots of money. I mean, his travelling companions had not, were not just getting money from the, Corinth, from the people at Corinth, they had brought with them money from other parts of other churches as well. So there was a lot of money amongst the team travelling around, and maybe that was part of the reason to, for a plot Anyway, he uh, heads back north through Macedonia. Um, but it was while he, during this three months, that he wrote his letter to the Romans. So we have in these verses, you know, the, the situations, you know, covering basically chapter 19 and 20, the situations where he wrote three of his longest letters, you know, one or two Corinthians and Romans. Uh, Romans is actually the longest letter found in antiquity. It's, it's, it's an enormously long letter. There are reasons for that. I won't say why. And he tells the Romans also that, I mean, he, he gets some news from Rome that then there's a pr- real problem there that he needs to sort out. But he's under obligation to take the gifts to Jerusalem. So he's thinking, oh, oh really frustrated. I want to go there and just teach them. Because he, he had a longing to go to Rome. But now there's this problem between the Jews and the Gentiles within the church that he needs to sort out. And he's, he's feeling, ah, oh, I wish I could be there, but I can't. What can I do? Write a letter. And it's, it's like the providence of God has arranged that actually Paul was full of compassion and, and passion about the situation there. And so he wrote this longest letter to the Romans because he couldn't go there in person. And we're the winners, you know, because we have the book of Romans, which is amazing in terms of its content. But it's not a treatise of the gospel. It's actually sorting out a problem in Rome. But he has to take, he has to demonstrate his credentials for the first eight chapters before he can actually challenge the issue. But it's, it's an interesting read, you know. And there's lots of things we love about Romans, but it's, let's not go there now. <coughs> So Paul doesn't take this direct route back to um, Jerusalem. He, he travels up north. And in verse 4, so I'll, I'll read verse 4, Ling Ling. It's, uh, um, I've, I've practised this. So we have, um, So part of the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him 
and of the Thessalonians Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians Tychicus and Trophimus. These went ahead, on ahead, and were waiting for us at Troas. So, okay, basically, we have a list of seven people here, and um, six of them were given their place names or where they're from. Um, so, Sopeta is from Berea. You can see that on the map there. That's um, in Macedonia. And Aristarchus and Secundus are from Thessalonica. You can see that also on the map. So, these three are from Macedonia. Okay, you with me? Then we have Gaius of Derby. Now, turning to your map again, Derby is one of these places in the middle of what we call Turkey now. So, it's actually in what we would normally refer to as Galatia you know, so, um, as in the letter to the Galatians so Derby is there and the one person in the list who it doesn't say where they're from is Timothy so who knows where Timothy is from anybody know which, which city he hails from Corinthians? No, he doesn't. No, no. no. But he, I mean, he, he ministered there. from a Greek family. Yeah, yeah, his, yeah. He was kind of half Jewish, half Greek. His, his mother was Jewish, his father was Greek. And that, we have that, that explained why um, Paul considered it appropriate to circumcise him for, for, for ministry purposes. Um, so, yeah, but he's actually from the town of Lystra, which is the next one along from Derby. So, in other words, also from Galatia. So we have two people, got three people from Macedonia, two people from Galatia, got that so far, and then we have described as the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. So by Asia, actually it means these two people from Ephesus. And Ephesus was the capital of this uh, Roman province of Asia. So what we've got, we've got seven people here, and they're actually representing um, different areas of Paul's ministry. And so seven plus two, which the two being Luke and Paul, so we have a party of nine people. This is quite a lot. So why are there so many people? I mean, Paul always travelled, had or liked to have travelling companions because of the dangers of travelling and just the fellowship as well. But I don't think he always travelled with nine people. So anybody like to suggest why there are that many people in this party? Money. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, that's it. The, the idea is the money. But, okay, in order, they want to be, have many people to, for security. But also there's the aspect. So, Ari, were you going to say this? He invited the churches to choose representatives. Yeah, this is, this is the other factor as well. So that the churches from the three main provinces where Paul has done his mission work, like Galatia, Macedonia, and Asia, all send representatives, either two people or three people, to see that everything is done according to righteousness. There's no, nothing suspect, and that their gifts make it to Jerusalem. They were representatives, and yeah, they were they making were, sure that they yeah. got, their money got where it was supposed yeah, to Yeah, absolutely. So that explains why we have got such a large party here in, in that first. So what they've done is, so these group, I think it's probably all, all seven of them, because I think... Remember, when, when you're carrying money in those days, it's going to be coins. It's not banknotes. They didn't have banknotes then, at least hardly. I don't know what they did. Anyway, anyway, in my opinion. So anyway, but basically, all money transaction was in, 
with with heavy stuff. So I imagine you know sil- silver and some, no doubt all sorts of coinage, and I imagine they would have had to have shared out the weight between them. Yeah. And also for security reasons, and then so yeah, I imagine there was quite a lot of weight carrying that money, those all those coins around. And they, you know, supporting one another and, you know, being careful as oh, well. I think they might have uh, brought a camel or two. Well, I don't know. We, we have no record that uh, any kind of beasts of burden were used by the disciples. I think they just walked. Oh, oh, that would be my guess. Ari, do you have a view? Do you think they would have used? I would be confident that they walked and were covered with animals getting on out of ships as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, this list of uh, seven people some of them are just mentioned only there and some of them are mentioned uh, multiple places like Aristarchus and obviously Timothy is mentioned lots of places as well because he's uh, Paul's companion and uh, mentioned in the in the introduction to a number of letters Um, so some of these are you know regulars and one like Trophimus last person on the list he um, ends up on the Temple Mount with um, Paul and uh, was there when the uh, another riot kicks off. <laughs> That's, we'll come to that later in that, that story. But Trophimus was there. So verse 5, they, uh, they went on ahead waiting for us at Troas. So um, notice the use of us and we. So this um, starts in verse 5 and verse 6. So probably most of us know what that signifies so when when we have the words uh, in verse 5 um, these went on and were waiting for us at Troas us means who who's writing Luke, Luke. so it really means Luke and Paul so they sent these seven folk on who are carrying the ballast, carrying the, the money, um, and they probably stick together for, you know, obvious reasons. And Paul and Luke were following. And so we have this clue within the book of Acts. When you see we and us, it is Luke saying, I'm there. I'm writing. I'm with Paul. I'm, I'm an eyewitness. You know, this is uh, my contribution. I mean, it's a very subtle way of doing it, but it, it's, when, you, when you notice it, it's definitely there. And it, it start, first starts happening in chapter 16, when he first meets and joins up with Paul. But now this is a... Then he, he now joins with Paul, and he goes all the way to Jerusalem, and then he ends up going back to Rome with him. So he actually, from now on through to the rest of Acts, for most of the time, Luke is Paul's companion. Verse 7, on, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bed, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So, first day of the week, what, what day of the week is that? Sunday. Sunday. And so when do you think, so they're, they're having a meeting, obviously, so when are they meeting? What time of day do you think they would meet on the Sunday? Saturday night. Mm. Well, don't you think it was in the evening? Um, I think it would be in the evening, and I think it would probably... Now, Ariel, do you think it would have been on after Shabbat in the evening, or on the evening of... Well, I would have guessed it was a Mosaic Shabbat here, but I, I don't know. 
Yeah. I mean, usually, as Gentiles, we read this as meaning the Sunday evening, you know, the evening of the first day of the week. But when you're talking about Jewish people, they think of evening as the evening before. So there could be some difference about it. But the point is that um, the opportunity to get together, particularly if it, if it was the evening of the Sunday, was that uh, because it was a work day, people would have been at work. The slaves would have been at work. Actually, the slaves would have been at work on Saturday as well. And they wouldn't have had the chance to get away until the evening. So if the fellowship wants to meet together, it has to be in the evening. Um, um, and the, it mentions breaking of the bread, a shared meal and a time of worship to remember and celebrate the significance of Jesus. And that's the phrase that's used very early on in, in the community in, uh, in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 2. Now here we have a, um, Paul is talking and uh, remember this is the occasion, this is Troas where we read previously that when he was going through the first time he was feeling unsettled because he was wanting to meet up with Titus and he couldn't find him. So he didn't spend very much time at Troas and he um, then moved on. So maybe he's, you know, spending an extended evening and actually, actually, it's an all-nighter, basically, when you read it. He's, he's up all night talking to the, uh, to the fellowship there. So the first part of the story, though, is um, verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. <laughs> and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now... This, this is one of these things where we're given the guy's name and this, what the, the, the readers will be laughing about is the, the name of the guy here, Eutychus, which means, Arie? Uh, I don't know, pleasant, grace, something, I'm not sure. It means uh, lucky stroke fortunate. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, so this is, this is the kind of, I think the name is included in the passage to make us smile. Because this guy falls out of a third-story window, and it says that he's taken up dead. Now, we can rely on Luke to know what he's talking about, and when someone's dead, they're dead. So it's not a case of, he appeared to be dead. This boy was dead. And then Paul comes down and does something. Uh, let me, before I say that, so it's, the other slightly interesting thing about this is... The third story, now maybe these details are not that important, but actually it gives you colour once you know what kind of buildings are talking, being talked about. So in a Roman city, particularly in the commercial centre of a city, there would be these kind of what we would call row houses or terraced houses, and they were in the style of three storeys tall, and the and the the bottom, the ground floor was a shop on the street and the two st floors above were dwellings. And these, this was a very common design within Rome for buildings within you know, the um, intensely built centre of a city. And so it would appear, and the Roman term for these is insula. And they've been excavated in many places and they're referred to also in many uh, ancient documents. And uh, so it appears that 
this um, house, this third story house, is just an ordinary, actually, apartment, we would call it, in, in a small row of houses, and that's where they're having the, uh, the meeting. And um, this young lad, Eutychus, I think he was probably feeling a bit stuffy because of all the oil lamps. He went and sat in the window to get some fresh air and fell asleep. Oh well. And they didn't have air conditioning. I, I would not have thought so, actually. If, yeah. And it says in verse 10, But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Now, this idea of Paul kind of bending over, other translations have, you know, fell on him. or It's, it's kind of a very active thing that Paul did, or threw himself on him in the NIV, it says. And these uh, descriptions are reminiscent of a story, or two stories, in the Old Testament. Do you remember both Elijah and Elisha were involved with raising to life a young boy. They both did it. Um, Elijah raised the widow's son, and Elisha, he raised the Shunammite son. So one's in 1 Kings 17 and the other's in 2 Kings 4. And in, in both occasions, you know, Elijah and Elisha, they, they stretched themselves on him and, and prayed to the Lord, Lord, let his life return. And I think this, either, I mean, I'm sure Paul would have been conscious of these stories. And maybe he did a similar thing and prayed in a similar way for this, this lad who died. And he came back to life. And verse 11, when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. And so he departed. So not just all evening and then with an interruption in the evening with this poor lad falling out of the window. He went, then went back upstairs and had the breaking, this meal of breaking of bread and they stayed all night talking. It really was an all-nighter. Well, um, yeah. Well, let's 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 give the lad a break. Let's say that he had been working hard all day. Was he overcome? Well, he may. I don't know. Anyway, fell asleep. Whatever. I but always read it when he said many lamps in the upper room. It's like it's a light room. It's not a dim room. Because he shouldn't have fallen asleep. No, I think the fumes would have been a problem, which is why he was sitting in the window. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of. Yeah. No, that's, but that's that's a guess. But it just kind of maybe adds a bit of background to it. Mm-hmm. Well, again, I mean, besides the fact that it was a miracle and he brought it to life, yeah. do you think it's included here to show the fact that he spent so much time there, or is it included to show the fact that he did the miracle? Why, why is it so important? Okay, so these are good questions. You know, why does Luke include a particular story? Yeah. Anyone like to um, suggest an idea? I mean, it depends what you think Luke's purpose, overall purpose, of writing the book of Acts is. Uh, and there are certain things that we know. Uh, you know, he had a focus on Paul, um, obviously. So he, he gives the origins of, of the faith and what happened in the early days in Jerusalem. And then particularly things like um, 
the martyrdom of Saul uh, of, um, of Stephen features in, in chapter seven, and then another feature he picks out is Peter's um, in chapter ten going to um, well, firstly going to Atanas, uh, lodging with Atanas, who was a pretty unclean kind of person because of the chemicals they worked with. But then from them, he goes to, to Caesarea, to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. And this is the beginning of the breakthrough to the Gentiles. So one thing that Luke is clearly wanting to document is how the faith spreads. So he, he gives the initial work into Samaria and then, you know, and then the suggestion of the, the gospel going south with the Ethiopian eunuch. And then it's important to him to document how it how this faith broke boundaries because actually it is very unusual and we take it for granted but it is very unusual for a faith to jump the fence of you know from within Judaism out into a completely different culture absolutely a different culture even though they were kind of living side by side in the Greco-Roman world and they were kind of uh, Hellenized or Greek thinking Jewish people but their faith was really distinct and the borders at least in the minds of a lot of Jews were very very well drawn so how and so people would be asking at the time how did this happen this never happens whereas when we think about it we just take it for granted because that's what happened that the, the faith jumped from the community of Jewish people into spread into the Gentiles and so this is important why, that is why Luke wants to document what happened with Peter and Cornelius. And also the fact that it wasn't Paul. So the initiative was actually Peter's. Well, actually the initiative was the Holy Spirit, to be fair. An act of, it was a work of God. And then he goes on to, and then, but then Peter really drops out of the picture I mean, he's, he's present in there in chapter 15 in the council, which is also a very key thing in connection with the Jewish-Gentile relations and how should we understand the increasing number of Gentiles in uh, a faith that started amongst Jewish people. And then that's it. So that's a key moment, Acts chapter 15. But from then on, we, we just don't hear anything about Peter. I think it's really documenting the, the work of the Holy Spirit, the sovereign choice of God, to, and, and he needed to do it through Peter, because he was given the keys of the kingdom. Um, so he does it through Peter, and then Peter has to justify what he did to the elders in Jerusalem. And Peter said, well, I was just there, because I, I was following, you know, I was in the house, yeah, I went into his house, but that was... I was following the commands of the angel and then the Holy Spirit fell on them like, just like it did on all of us at the beginning. So, you know, this is not... I was just kind of going with the flow. This is a work of God, which is... And it's a sovereign work of God to do things like that. But, it, but clearly Luke would want to, to record this. I think it's really awesome to see that after he fell... On the child that yep. led 
and suddenly he continued after that he continued speaking until the breaking of the day yeah. which shows the, the performance of a subjective experience of the work God is leading them to do and they are following the leading of the spirits mm -hmm. and shows us there was a, such a wonderful practice they are day to day and every day they are following the teaching of the Spirit and growing up to it. See, how, how could it that you fell, mm -hmm. old child, and continue talking? Yes, continue talking. That, that's, that's a good point, Ling Ling. What, what is interesting and surprising to us is that it didn't, I mean, obviously the um, family and friends of this boy were really grateful that he was raised from the dead. And they were yeah. extremely comforted. But Paul doesn't emphasize, you know, but he's seen miracles before. Yeah. He doesn't focus on them Many because, you know, we have this, this reassurance <laughs> in the Gospels that these signs shall follow those who believe. In my name, they shall cast out demons and, and heal the sick. But they follow. You don't have to turn around and watch them all the time. You'll fall over if you walk backwards watching the things that are following you. You, you keep your head at face following the Lord and these things will follow you so we get that sense here that Paul doesn't focus on yeah wow wasn't this amazing that this happened but very matter of fact what he's really keen to do is to convey encouragement and understanding and wisdom to these people because he knows that he's probably not going to see them again so that's, that that comes out later in the chapter where he he's getting this understanding of how things are going to un, unfold I just wondered if we could turn the air yep. to the I don't dress for air conditioning, I'm sorry. Yes. Just for the heat of the day. If that's not doesn't work, we'll get, get voted it's, to sort it. It's not. Is it? No, no, vote. Well, voter can, can be in charge of it. I love it. No, no, it's fine. Honestly, once it's off, I'll be fine. Okay. Now, the, the, what I thought, I just saw this for the first time reading this chapter. The fun thing is that um, having done an all-night teaching session with, with this miracle thrown in, what does Paul do the next day? He walks 20 miles across land to Assos. So... <laughs> He must so verse, have been on the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, there's something going on there, that's for sure. So verse 13, but going ahead of the ship, we, that is Luke and the others, set sail for Assos. So looking at the map, that's just kind of just below Troas, just a tiny bit below Troas, um, intending to take Paul on board there, for he had so arranged, intending himself to go by land. Actually, what I think Paul was doing here was that he, 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 what he, he'd singled out a few people he wanted to spend all day with in, in a small company, and so they walked 20 miles. He was still teaching these people, but it, on, on the ship then there would have been too many distractions going on, but just taking a, a handful of people that he walked overland in order to continue his teaching, having done it all night the night before. What a hero. Yes. <laughs> Um, and um, it goes through uh, so, and then he met us at Assos and we took him, took him on board and went to Mytilene now Mytilene is the capital and port city 
of the uh, you can see it on the map there of the island of Lesbos. So that, uh, you get the impression that um, the, the boat that they're on is kind of a small boat that likes to stop at harbours every night. You know, just do small, stays near the coast and just does small hops around. Um, and you, you also get the impression, which kind of surprised me, is that Paul could decide that they didn't stop at Ephesus. In other words, maybe the, the nine of them were a significant proportion of the people being carried, that he could decide where they stopped and where they didn't stop. So he, he skips over Ephesus and goes on to uh, further south, down to Miletus. Uh, but that, that's a bit later. Okay. So verse 15, and sailing from there we came to the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. So you can see this kind of just short hops and stops. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if at all possible, on the day of Pentecost. So this is, I would say, about AD 57. In other words, about 25 years after the original day of Pentecost. Now, we actually don't know well enough the years, particularly when Jesus died, so we can't say this was the 25th anniversary. So that's not really the point why he's rushing there, but um, why, do you, why do you think Paul is motivated to try and get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Because there'll be a huge gathering, maybe looking for something like the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Well, I think there would have been, maybe routinely every year, there would have been a, a remembrance, a celebration amongst the believers, you know, recalling the mighty works of God that he did on that first day of Pentecost. Uh, I mean, the, the city would be heaving anyway uh, because it was one of the three pilgrim feasts. Mm-hmm. So, which would be um, Passover and Pentecost, Sukkot and Sukkot, which we're in at the moment. So, and the city is heaving at the moment. Um, yeah, so it would have been busy, but it would have been a particularly special time for the believers to commemorate the work of God. Do you think that he wanted to... I've never thought of this before, but do you think that he wanted to build them up and encourage them in, in carrying on what happened the first Pentecost? Is that well, I think um, that he might have been concerned about that. I don't know. It's, it's hard to to guess. I mean, that may be an aspect of it. To, it would certainly be an encouragement for those people to hear, actually, of all the powerful works of God in amongst the Gentiles around the Roman Empire. That, that's hearing Paul testify to the kingdom of God would have been amazing. In fact, I could sit all night listening to that kind of stuff yeah. from a man like Paul to the, the great works of God. And so that would always be an encouragement for um, the people. But also there's this thing, do you know that Pentecost is a feast of first fruits? In fact, there are two feasts of first fruits in the Jewish calendar. <coughs> do people know what they are and when they happen? Right after Passover. Okay. Um, so there's that, that one, the Feast of First Church, which is the barley harvest, occurs within the week of un, uh, unleavened bread. So with, within what's sometimes referred to as Passover. And then seven weeks later, 
you have another feast of first fruits, which is the first fruits of the wheat harvest, um, which is what Pentecost is about. And so there's a sense in which he is bringing this offering from around, and it's a feast of first fruits, and he's maybe wanting to it to represent at least the first fruits of some of his missionary work abroad. So wanting to get to Pentecost for that occasion. I mean, that's we don't know for certain, but I think there would have been multiple reasons for him to want to try and make that date. And as far as I can tell, we don't know whether he did or not. I think um, if I were a Jewish believer following Paul, and he is rushing back to Jerusalem in order to keep commit Pentecost, mm-hmm. it's tremendously meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. As a Jewish believer, the spirits is representing the resurrect Christ, the ascension Lord, and pulling down on them mm-hmm. is no longer the Old Testament spirits. Mm-hmm. It's a triune God upon them. Yeah. So they, maybe if I were them, so this is awesome, only happened to us Jews first. Mm-hmm. Now we are spreading it to the Gentiles. Yeah. It's a triune God which is never mentioned in the Old Testament time. God it's hinted at. But yeah, yeah. To it. if, if I may reason for this, mm-hmm. to me it would be very meaningful. Wow, I want to go. Yeah. That was the first time so impressive, like the tongues of fires upon us. That was Jesus resurrected down to the, in ascension to the highest points of the heavens, and he's pulling down the spirit upon us. Mm-hmm. What yeah. as a things to motivate us to work, to preach, to propagate, mm-hmm. to dispense. Yeah. In the minds of the, the people who were at the original day of Pentecost, there was all sorts of resonances with the, uh, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai to do with kind of noises and fire from heaven and thunder and lightning and all sorts of things. And the, actually the most impo- poignant comparison between what happened, um, I think, um, in Exodus about the giving of the law on Mount Sinai was it was around the episode of the golden calf. Right. And, and Moses comes down and finds out that this golden calf has appeared and they're worshipping it and, mm-hmm. and Aaron seems to come up with some fairly lame excuse that it just kind of appeared uh, and they started worshipping it so Moses destroys it and then there's a um, I think there's a, uh, a sickness that breaks out and we are told that about 3,000 people die as a result of the plague that was caused sent by God as a result of that rebellion 3,000 died. Whereas on the day of Pentecost, what happened? 3,000 were brought into life on on the first day of the, on the the birthday of the church, if you like to think of it that way. But this is one of the interesting um, parallels between that Old Testament story and it's it's good to make these connections at that time of year and other times as well. Paul would have also had in mind struggle going on for the soul of the congregation in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. It's very clear throughout his letters and we know history in the aftermath that it was deeply uh, and in fact controlled by the Judaizing faction coming out of the Pharisaic uh, background. And Paul would have had in mind Posing this, at least in spirit, he would have had to be very, very delicate and discreet in how he did it. The fact that he's coming with this 
crowd of largely Gentiles, and this pile of money from the Gentile churches would have been a bear, would have been an exhibit A and B in his discussion as to what the substance and essence of the faith really was. <laughs> yeah. He actually knew about all these false teachings before that. Actually he's written Galatians. He's written Philippians. He's yeah. he's unleashed diatribe after diatribe of frankly people that he's going to be confronting now in Jerusalem. So. Yes. He's, he's also laid the stage here in, to optimize his uh, chances for yes. success. I mean, the most obvious one is with the Galatians. So that's the first letter he writes. So this, this, is, this is a big deal. The Judaizers come to that, that area and cause havoc. And it's actually a reasonable assumption that the trouble that was caused at Corinth were these um, Judaizing uh, people that, that said, you know, you must be circumcised and so on, all, all that kind of thing. Um, and they had started to take over uh, or have a very strong influence amongst the Corinthian church, which is why Paul felt he had to back off and write them another letter and that kind of carry on. Uh, yes, it's, it's all over the place, this, this challenge from that aspect of the church. And it was because it wasn't actually settled properly in Acts, by Acts 15. It was, uh, that was one scourge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he, he's a man of principle. Paul, you see that all the way through. Um, but anyway, to, to kind of just close off this point that we're making, that I think Paul's generous gift of money to the Jerusalem church from his year's work amongst the Gentiles would have been especially appropriate on this feast of first fruits. Now, um, okay, now verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So Troas clearly was a very busy time. And Ephesus would have been even busier, you know, because sp- he was known all over the place in Ephesus because he spent three years there. And so he clearly wants to try and manage his time better. So he goes onwards south to Miletus and then he sends someone back to Ephesus and only gathers the key people that he wants to talk to. So not every, as we say, Tom, Dick and Harry, you just get the leadership are welcomed back to uh, talk with Paul, and it would have taken uh, maybe two. It was my latest was 30 miles south of Ephesus, so it's a two two day journey. So two days to get there, organise another two days for the people to come back. So or three days. So that's and then he probably needed to rest. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe maybe he needed a rest. Yeah, but actually, I think Paul would be itching to meet them and then start talking to them. You know, and the and the. Um, information that he conveys in, this, in the second part of the chapter. Um, and I think actually we'll probably we'll draw it to a close here because I think we can deal better with the um, Paul's uh, address to the Ephesian elders uh, in its kind of entirety. We'll deal with that next week. So um, any, just to round up and close off our time together, any things you'd wanted to, questions to ask or comments to make or any surprises? I've always wanted to, always wondered whether how much the church in Jerusalem at the time actually was aware of Paul's ministry and what was... He did several visits to Jerusalem. Uh, bringing famine relief, amongst other things, with, with Barnabas in the first place. So Barnabas was the guy who introduced him. 
Um, so there, are, there are other people like Paul uh, evangelizing. Yes. That reason, but I guess Paul was lucky in so far as he had, well, we're lucky we still have the writers of Luke to actually act as his testimony from, from, yes. from what, what he did. And I think he, he was known amongst the leadership, that was for sure, because clearly Paul was a high-profile person within the church anyway. And, and uh, you know, when he was converted in Damascus, people heard that you know, he that, who was once chasing down the Christians is now just preaching in support of them. I think, you know, he was always news, this guy. And so, uh, but that doesn't mean that his ideas were always that welcome, as Ari pointed out. You know, he, was, he presented a challenge to people. And some of it. Hmm? There was a lot of hostility among the believers to Paul, yeah. even as uh, James sums up when he uh, shows up there. He says, All these people have all heard that you've been preaching against the Torah everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, uh, mm. they were getting a message about Paul. Yeah, and uh, they came up with a plan that didn't really work. But anyway, so. Um, But the, the, the story goes on uh, a bit further, you know, and ends up with Paul's adventures and how he... Actually, the, the one comment I want to uh, talk about, it kind of reflects on Paul's circumstances a bit. And I, to do that, I'm going to just take, um, read a few verses from 2 Corinthians 12, which is about Paul when he talks about the thorn in the flesh. You've heard of that phrase, haven't you? Um, Um, So I'll just read these few verses and then just make a comment at the end. What are you reading from? I'm reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, uh, Let's say starting at verse um, 3. And Paul says, I know a man that was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man... I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except for my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast more, all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Amen. And uh, people speculate as to what this thorn in the, in the side would be. I actually think it's really, really clear. When you read the book of Acts, I would describe Paul as a riot waiting to happen. He turns up and he's such a forceful preacher and such a presence that the opposition you know, organises itself very quickly. Yes. I mean, in, in different ways and in different times and he had some breathing space in Corinth um, but the opposition was out to get him and basically what happened was that God appointed a messenger of Satan basically it's a one of the things that demons specialise in is deceit Uh, but 
that's kind of thing that affects you internally, but externally they specialise in chaos. And so Paul is given the company of this demon, which is a chaos merchant. He basically makes his life, his external circumstances, very challenging. But so I think the thorn in the flesh is a list of five things that he goes on to list here. So I'm going to read the list of five things that make up Paul's thorn in his flesh. For the sake of Christ, then, this is verse 10, for the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So these five things together, you will see characterise his life as testified in the book of Acts. And it's actually, it's the kind of thing that a messenger from Satan who can make all sorts of external things go wrong and encourage people who are disposed to hate the believers to suddenly go overboard, that's the... And, but basically Paul says, okay, be my companion, make my time um, really difficult because the more you make me look weak, the more Christ's strength will show through. Amen. Yeah. So this is the kind of person that Paul was. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So on that note, I think that's probably a good way to end our study this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.